Welcome to The Bridge, fun conversations on culture, life, and everything in between. Find us where you get your podcasts. If you like the show, then consider pushing the like button or giving us five stars. Suggestions, comments, anything you would like to share, email us at welovethebridge at gmail.com. We love the bridge. If we look at the last several years, in particular under the Biden administration, China has made many overtures and has made many indications that it wants to stabilize relations and has been focusing its attention on other parts of the world, showing that it does know how to conduct diplomacy, that if there is will on all sides, that China can be a huge mediator as well as a facilitator of peace and diplomacy. We saw that with Iran and Saudi Arabia brokering peace in Beijing. And of course, we've seen that in various multilateral mechanisms like the BRICS summit, et cetera, et cetera, the uh, Shanghai Cooperation Organization. We see it all over the world. That even though uh, politicians want to get, quote unquote, tough on China, it's not in the interest, as Danny said, and as you said, uh, of of America, $37 billion in 2022 in agricultural goods alone were sold from the United States to China. So who is supporting U.S. farmers? Chinese consumers are. China imports $2.71 trillion in goods, not from the United States, from the rest of the world. If the United States wants to be a part of that, wants to benefit from trade with China, it needs to maintain good relations. So manufacturers, business persons, and farmers all benefit in the United States from an increased uh, healthy relationship with China. Welcome to Talk It Out with me, Li Jingjing. So now, even though it's online, but actually I am based in San Francisco now. And together joining me today is Jason Smith, who is joining me from Beijing. He's the one in Beijing. I'm the one in San Francisco, mm-hmm. even though he's from San Francisco. And also Danny Haifang joining me from New York. And you, you see three of us from China and the U.S., Young people, in this episode, we're going to talk about the China-U.S. relations because this week, the APEC meeting is taking place in San Francisco. World leaders, businessmen, experts from different fields are gathering here in San Francisco to discuss how to build connections, to have more trade. So, and most importantly, Chinese President Xi Jinping will also meet U.S. President Joe Biden here in San Francisco. And this has been attracting world's attention because in the past few years, the China-U.S. relations has been deteriorating to the rock bottom. And that has a huge impact, negative impact, almost on every field, on scientific cooperation, economic cooperation, cultural, educational, and people in exchanges. But in the past few months, things start to change. A delegation of Californian politicians have been visiting China. Um, For example, California Governor Gavin Newsom, together with a a group of businessmen, politicians, visited China, toured around different cities from Hong Kong to Shenzhen to Shanghai to Beijing, looking for cooperations on climate change on business and he was very be he was being very respectful to the local politicians and businessmen in china and also in the past few months american experts from different fields like scholars 
uh, also have been visiting China. And as far as uh, Chinese tech scholars have been visiting the US to boost more people to people exchanges. So things are changing. Will this really have a positive impact on China-US relations? To get today, we have two fantastic experts in this field from America, and we will have a honest exchange on this subject because Jason and Danny, Jason has been living in China for many years now, and Danny have visited China multiple times. Me, a Chinese person normally based in Beijing is now in America. So I think this is like us being here is kind of like the reflection of what's going on between China and the US now. So let's welcome first Jason Smith. He's the host of The Bridge and he's also a San Francisco local. So Jason, welcome. Hi. Well, it's, it's great to be here. You know, I'm really interested in the Gavin Newsom twist because before he was the governor of California, he was actually the mayor of San Francisco. So the fact that, you know, Xi Jinping and Biden are going to be meeting in San Francisco and Gavin Newsom was just over here doing, I think they call it subnational diplomacy. And he was seemed to have a good time other than uh, railroading that child during the basketball game. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think, you know, a lot of the uh, diplomatic overtures in the recent weeks and months have been more positive. So I think there are a lot of people around the world who realize that this relationship is really important and are hopeful that there can be more positive, fruitful outcomes from this meeting. Thank you. And your cat has been walking around <laughs> in your background. Yeah. <laughs> your cat wants to show up on this the show as well. <laughs> And Danny, Danny Haifom, uh, he's a geopolitical analyst, independent journalist based in New York. He's very popular across different platforms. Uh, he has all his own YouTube channel, uh, the same name as his name, Danny Haifom, attract, I think, uh, more than 100,000 followers, right, Danny? Tell us more about yourself. Thanks so much for having me back, Jingjing. It's always great to be on your channel. I essentially do regular streaming and videos on the biggest geopolitical questions of the day. Primarily, I tend to focus on U.S.-China relations and helping people in the collective West understand China better. But of course, given the fact that you have a NATO proxy war in Ukraine, as well as a U.S.-backed war that Israel is waging in Gaza, it does truly take uh, a global vision to understand these developments. So that's essentially what I do. And I also do some freelance writing on the side for CGTN and other publications. Mm -hmm. So the first question to both of you, um, I think it's good that there are some signs recently, uh, at least the two nations want to stabilize the relationship. And we as the average Americans and Chinese will benefit from, from no escalation of, of tensions. But um, do you think this will really have a positive impact? And how do you see the meeting between, the possible meeting between Chinese President Xi Jinping and US President Joe Biden? Uh, how about we start with from you, Jason? Well, you know, since uh, 2019, there's been a considerably uh, considerably less foreigners living in China. And so I think one of the things that we really need to see is increased people to people exchanges. And this goes both ways because a lot fewer Chinese want to study in the US, want to study in the UK, want to study in Australia. And I think a lot of that stems from hostility from US leadership and media. So if the United States leadership can get their act in order in a little in, in a way and actually start promoting people to people exchanges in a positive way, 
we could see more Chinese people flowing into the United States, maybe less scientists running away from the United States, which is happening now. And I would really love to see uh, an increased presence of Americans coming to China, learning Chinese, learning about Chinese culture firsthand, as opposed to the current way that they're learning about China, which is through the filter of fantastical media, which portrays China inaccurately. Mm-hmm. Danny, what's your thought? Uh, I think the meeting will be taking place this week between Chinese President and U.S. President Joe Biden, which uh, you know, it's all the world is looking at this and uh, you know, thinking what's going to happen next. Uh, what's your projection? What, what's what's your thought? Do you think this is a positive thing? Indeed, it is a positive development. I mean, just your presence changing in the United States, I think, shows that we have come a long way from the period where relations had sunk to a new low. However, I always like to hearken back to the last time that Xi Jinping and Joe Biden met on the sidelines of the G20 summit in Bali, where Xi Jinping said to Joe Biden, said to his U.S. counterpart, that words must be met with actions, that however, the United States talk, it must be met with true concerted action. And so I definitely agree with everything that Gina said, that Jason said, with the addition that these changes, the development of stronger ties, getting ties back on the right track really does fall at the feet of the United States. It really is up to the United States to make the political, the diplomatic, and the economic policy changes necessary to stabilize relations and to forward peace. Because if we look at the last several years, in particular under the Biden administration, China has made many overtures and has made many indications that it wants to stabilize relations and has been focusing its attention on other parts of the world, showing that it does know how to conduct diplomacy, that if there is will on all sides, that China can be a huge mediator as well as a facilitator of peace and diplomacy. We saw that with Iran and Saudi Arabia brokering peace in Beijing. And of course, we've seen that in various multilateral mechanisms like the BRICS summit, et cetera, et cetera, the uh, Shanghai Cooperation Organization. We see it all over the world happening with China in the lead. We see it in, on the Palestine-Israel issue, China calling for a ceasefire using the UN Security Council for what it's supposed to be used for, which is brokering peace. And so this all indicates that the United States, given that it has a large policy umbrella that is hostile towards China, that there really hasn't been many changes despite all of these meetings, Blinken, Janet Yellen, Gavin Newsom, Wang Yi coming to Washington, meeting with Biden, and of course, uh, the recent meetings that are happening in San Francisco as we speak. All of that is positive, but insofar as very few policy changes happen, it is unclear whether the momentum of the 2024 elections coming up in November in the United States will take relations again backward because we know, and Jingjing, I know you are very familiar with this from covering the last presidential election cycle in the United States, that oftentimes competition for the post of the Oval Office for the presidency often requires both sides, all parties in the United States to focus on how to be tougher on China. So that I think is really a ticking clock that must be addressed now. There must be changes now happening if relations are going to stabilize and move forward. Mm. What if what if this meeting didn't go well or it went well temporarily, but we as as long as we enter the election seasons next year and things start to change 
again, I mean, what are the possible negative consequences? Um, Jason? I think Danny's right, actually. E even in spite of the Wangi meeting, in spite of Gavin Newsom coming over at a national level, the United States hasn't taken any concrete actions to de-escalate any kind of tensions. So I think the United States actually needs to take one or two steps, probably demonstrating those with t the lowering some of the tariffs that were uh, originally uh, created under Trump and then escalated under Biden. Uh, removing some of those or alleviating some of that would actually go a long way to showing that the United States has, you know, better diplomatic uh, intentions. Just talking is something that the United States doesn't just do with China. It does that with nations around the world where it just says it's going like there were uh, alternatives to the Belt and Road Initiative launched multiple times by the G7, and nothing came of those. No projects, no money from any of the members. So oftentimes the United States likes to say something, but it actually doesn't walk the walk very well. China does the opposite. China set, undersells what it's going to do and then overachieves. China was going to reach peak carbon by 2030. It may have actually done it already, but definitely within the next two years, China will have reached peak carbon. So China usually over delivers on its promises and the United States has the opposite effect. So if the United States is going to continue engaging in diplomatic overtures with China and saying things are getting better with Gavin Newsom or, you know, the visit with Wang Yi and, and so forth, the United States does actually need to take some steps to show that it's sincere in its intentions. But yes, going back to the election cycle, looking at some some of the things that candidates are already saying it could be it we may enter the period that we were in six months ago where we were at very poor lows mm. uh danny do you want to add something well a lot of the consequences i think of relations remaining where they are or worse between china and the united states will really be felt mostly by the united states because one of the primary motivations of the United States of the Biden administration holding these meetings and in intimating and indicating that it has intentions to stabilize relations, a lot of it has to do with the state of the United States economy right now. The United States economy is skating on thin ice. It has been able to avoid the worst excesses of the consequences of what's gone on with sanctions on Russia, the inflation crisis, all of that. It has been affected, but it hasn't been as affected as badly as, let's say, Western Europe and Germany, et cetera. But at the same time, U.S. economists, I think the U.S. political establishment as a whole, understand that all of this is temporary if things keep going on the same path. So if you actually listen to a lot of the rhetoric from the U.S. political establishment, Joe Biden himself, Antony Blinken, Janet Yellen, they often talk about uh, China being responsible for doing certain things to stabilize the situation economically around the world and even diplomatically and politically. They'll put the blame onto China or they'll put the onus on China for resolving certain crises that are actually of the U.S. is making. For example, in Ukraine, we've heard this many times, China needs to help stabilize uh, relations. Uh, they've even called on China to help stabilize the situation in the Middle East on in the wake of the fact that the United States is fully backing Israel in the catastrophic situation that it's causing in Gaza. So all of this is to say is 
that the United States is looking to China as sort of a pressure release valve. And the problem that I think the United States faces is that exactly as Jason said, there needs to be concrete policy action, especially with regard to the tariffs, the trade war, and even I think the sanctions that are going on that have been leveled on China's tech industry, all of that has hampered U.S industrial output, the U.S.'s innovation, all of it has actually held the U.S. back. And this is on top of the fact that the multitude of sanctions on Russia have had much more of an effect on the West as a whole than Russia itself. So there are these hot points for the United States to address economically, which means that if the United States doesn't come out with anything concrete from the meeting between Biden and Xi Jinping and whatever happens thereafter, the United States is actually in a pretty fragile state. And this isn't even to say the consequences beyond economics that these geopolitical crises in Ukraine, in Gaza, also have on the U.S.'s global standing. So Joe Biden hasn't actually achieved any foreign policy achievement up until this point. Every U.S. president has to have one signature foreign policy move to promote for the possible next term, the campaign, et cetera. And even just if you're even on your way out in your second term, usually U.S. presidents like to have one or two foreign policy achievements that they can put on their resume, which then allows for an easier transition for the next within the political party. So none of that has happened for Joe Biden. The normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia is totally off the table because of what's going on in Gaza. The attempts to achieve some kind of victory over Russia and Ukraine, that has been totally lost. And so the United States really does need, especially Joe Biden, really does need some kind of foreign policy signature. The problem here is that to get it with China means a huge sacrifice politically for the Biden administration. So it is a very delicate situation. And I think it's one that poses risks to this meeting coming out with anything concrete on the U.S. side. You're listening to The Bridge. And uh, coming to the next question, because Danny, you visited China several times to attend different conferences and different cities. And Jason, you've been living in China for many years. You married to a Chinese wife. You were now working for as my colleague for a Chinese company as well. So I have uh, you both can share some of your observations com comparing the cultural differences in the United States and China. So because I think a lot of um, people in the United States or in the general West, uh, they don't they have never been to China. Like I think recently one of the Californian um, leader, I've got the name of the county, but he also vis visited China. And during the press interview, he said, well, to the other people, I mean, you got a problem with China? Well, have you been to China? If you haven't been to China, why well, got a problem with China? And he himself went to China 16 times. So I think that's also the same to a lot of people. They already hated China, even though they've never been to China. And the hate and misconception comes from media coverage or all the misconceptions or lies from the different media. So, but when they come to actually go to China and interact with local people, they will have a different 
thinking and different impressions. So Jason, how about we start with you? You've been living in China for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> what's your thought on China? Well, my personal experience in the United States was one where I endured uh, criminality uh, quite a few times, actually. I had two cars stolen from me. I was robbed at gunpoint by three children. I had a stereo stolen from another car. I had my base amp stolen for drug money. I So I moved to China. I have experienced zero crime in the entire time that I've been living in China. So that is one of the things that I really appreciate. But there is a story I want to tell. I um I was dressed really warmly in this really large black uh, Kung Fu Shan, which is a Chinese uh, kind of traditional garment. And it was in the middle of summer and it was way too thick. And I was crossing the street and this old lady, very short old lady, I, I mean, really old, like 90. She started yelling at me. And fortunately, because I knew Chinese, I knew she had my best intentions at heart. She was saying how you shouldn't dress like that young man. I'm not that young, but she told, told me I was young and you shouldn't dress like that. We don't dress like that in the summer. You need to go home and change. But she was yelling so loud, you could probably hear her a block away in any direction. So I was thinking if I was coming over to China for the first time, I didn't know any Chinese. I would just think this really old, this little old lady like didn't like me or was angry at me. And so one of the things I've kind of noted is that in China, people have a tendency of looking after one another. She was like basically saying, you know, to looking at me like a cousin or a nephew or something like someone in her extended family, like, hey, I'm really concerned. You shouldn't dress like this, dress differently. And that's not something I think you would see in the United States. If someone in the United States started saying you need to do this or you need to do that, people would get really offended. So one of the things that I've noticed about Chinese culture is that people really get involved in one another, another's lives, even when they don't even know one another. And I see it, you know, after many years as a really positive thing. And it's a different kind of ethos where people really do care about one another in society. And I think the more the more time I spend here, the more subtle differences like this that I notice. And I really kind of like it. You go to a park, you know, people immediately start talking to you. You want to learn Tai Chi in the morning, just show up at 6 a.m. And they'll just be like, please, please come over here. Let me show you how it's done. And I really, really enjoy those aspects of, of living here. Oh, yeah. You're listening to The Bridge. Danny, uh, I remember last time you went to Beijing, we talked about the differences between Beijing and New York. And uh, what's your thought? You've been to different cities. So what's your comparison? Well, don't have to put down on any other side. It's not ha- doesn't have to be a put down. So well, let's uh, share your thoughts. Sure. So one of the highlights from my first trip to China was going to a traditional Chinese medicine hospital in Beijing. One of the delegates, a part of my delegation, a friend of ours, uh, me and my wife's, uh, he was having stomach issues, not uncommon for traveling abroad. And we went to this traditional Chinese medicine hospital. And exactly what Jason said, it is a much different collective feel. So in the United States, if you go to a hospital in New York City, for example, there's a lot of attention a hyper attention and focus on health privacy, right? There's 
laws about it. Insurance companies essentially write the laws and they say, you know, your health information is completely and totally protected. You go to China and you go to a traditional Chinese medicine hospital, you're often in an office with many other people as they often, oftentimes are getting involved, talking to the doctor that you're seeing and uh, wondering what is going on? How can, how can we, <laughs> how can we understand this? And it was a very interesting field because one could say that's, uh, you know, that's violating your privacy and others could say, hey, that's just people being concerned about other people. And so, so that's one thing. But I think the thing that strikes me the most whenever I go to China, whenever I have conversations with people about life in China versus life in the United States, I often get a lot of chuckles and laughs uh, whenever I point out some of the ways in which China is developing versus the United States. When I talk about clean cities, when I talk about building transportation and the quality of transportation in China, the proliferation of high-speed rail, attention to the quality of life, the standard of living of Chinese people, oftentimes they get less. Oh, that's that's just what everyone expects. Why wouldn't that happen? While in the United States, people don't really expect much to come from their governments at all levels, the, whether it's the local government of New York City, all the way to Washington, D.C., people aren't really expecting changes for the better, changes that correspond to their lives, that relate to their lives. And I think that's a massive difference because I often find the laughs and the chuckles that whenever I talk, it's usually anybody, anyone I'm talking to in China usually laugh about this because it's just something that's normal, right? It's this idea that life will get better, that the government should be serving the interests of ordinary people, of just Chinese people as a whole. That is not something that's some kind of foreign concept, some kind of alien or outside concept to the majority of Chinese people. While in the United States, it certainly is. Uh, there is a reason why there are such low trust levels in Congress, in the mainstream media, even in the U.S., presidency. Generally, you don't have U.S. presidents polling above 50% in terms of approval rating at ever in the best of times. In the worst of times, it's usually hovering around 40, 40, less than 45% or below. So that goes to show, I think, a profound difference and why it, it can be very refreshing. And it's so important, I think, for more people in the United States from the United States who live in the United States to travel to China, because it is something quite different to see a country that is modernizing, that is profoundly different from the United States in every single way, culturally, politically, uh, in so many ways. But yet you have a sense of confidence and uh, very high expectations among the vast majority of people that you meet, which is just very different from what you get at this stage of the U.S.'s political and economic development. At this stage, people of my generation especially have very little hope. And that isn't at all to say that China doesn't have any issues that it is addressing, but it is to say that Chinese people are confident that those issues will be addressed for the better and for their best interests. While in the United States, many people expect them to persist or to get worse. And you know, like I've never lived in the United States, but I traveled to the United States several times. But uh, even though my impression is, even though sometimes when you see some politicians or media, um, they were talking about crazy things about China. Like the reason I am very active on social network is because I'm just fed up with all the lies, with all the misconceptions that the mainstream media has been spreading. And also uh, politicians will say crazy things about China for their own personal interests to win elections or, or to divert attentions of internal issues. But when I actually interacted with average Americans, most of them are very friendly, very nice. 
Uh, like yesterday, I went on the streets talking to some young people, and they all talk about, you know, we we should, uh, even though we come from different cultures, we should talk to each other um, so we can understand. So they they've been saying very positive, very friendly things to me. Well, of course, there are some sometimes there are well dangerous situations. Like I also talked to many Chinese Americans uh, these past few days because Chinese Americans or Asian American society makes up forty percent. Of the population in San Francisco, so they are um, most of them have been have witnessing uh, horrible attacks uh, and racism in the past few years, just because of the the escalation of tensions and mainstream media has been portraying China in a horrible way, and the Chinese professors and universities, most of them are being treated as spies. Uh, I think one of the uh, experts from San Francisco told me, you know, uh, there's a racism is racism towards Black Americans, and the crime is called uh, black while driving because if you're black, if you're driving, you have higher tendencies to be arrested by police. And in recent years, there's another crime towards Asians. It's called being Asian while researching. So uh, many of them have been researched, but you know, like many professors, Chinese American society uh, research uh, scholars in universities, they were under research, being treated as spies. Millions were millions of dollars were being spent to invest them, but nothing was found. Nothing was being found. So that's the situation. So many Amer Asian American people really want the relationship between China and the U.S. to be much better because they are the first victim of the deterioration of the relationship and they will benefit from a better relationship and not just asian americans will benefit from this um everyone even beyond the chinese citizens and american citizens the whole world can benefit from sub, uh, projects like bri all those global initiatives so do you guys have any thought well, it is terrible. I've been watching the FBI website on the increase in Asian hate crimes in the United States. And I think from 2020 to 2021, it increased by 334%. So it more than tripled uh, in terms of uh, who was being attacked. And I, what you say about um, you know the media environment, it's absolutely true. I mean, five years ago, I wasn't in interested in doing media because I was just a happy, you know, foreigner enjoying life in China. But then I began to notice that the relationship had deteriorated to the point where there were constant lies in my own media because I as American I I would read American media and I began seeing this trail of lies and I'm like this is not true and that's actually when I began um you know getting on uh various platforms including YouTube and elsewhere and a lot of Chinese platforms as well Douyin because I wanted to to dispel a lot of this disinformation and in terms of uh increasing the quality of the relationship I want to go to back to something we were talking about earlier about US politicians and the election cycle that even though uh politicians want to get quote unquote tough on China it's not in the interest as Danny said and as you said uh of of America 37 billion dollars in 2022 in agricultural goods alone were sold from the United States to China so who is supporting US farmers Chinese consumers are. China imports 2.71 trillion in goods, not from the United States, from the rest of the world. If the United States wants to be a part of that, wants to benefit from trade with China, it needs to maintain good relations. So manufacturers, business persons, and farmers all benefit in the United States from an increased 
uh, healthy relationship with China. It wasn't U.S. politicians like Gavin Newsom who were coming over to China initially when the relationship began to sour. It was Tim Cook. It was Elon Musk. Big, important people who are doing business in China were concerned about their investments, as they should be. You know, Yum Brands, which controls uh, Taco Bell and KFC, they have 13,000 KFCs in China. Uh, there are, there's going to be 731 Hiltons by 2027 in China. Those are U.S. companies that are benefiting enormously from trade with China, from healthy business relationships with China. And honestly, the way that the United States operates, as far as my opinion goes, is that the, the rich really control who's in charge. And if the leaders in the United States are souring relationships and deteriorating business opportunities for the elite in the United States, they will not let those politicians remain, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. You're listening to The Bridge. It's certainly an interesting historic juncture for the relationship because for the first time, and I think for what will be the case from here on out, the United States really has to work with China, cooperate with China on equal footing. And I think that's principally what the problem is for the United States and why the U.S. political class and many sections of the foreign policy establishment are willing to potentially sacrifice the economic benefit of trade with China for a kind of Cold War orientation. It's because it was much more amenable to the entirety of the U.S. political and economic establishment to cooperate with China when China was coming from a much less developed place where development was still at very early stages, where wages were still very low in China, where there were a lot of opportunities to trade with China without any political consequences domestically and globally. Now, the United States has to negotiate on equal terms, has opportunities to benefit from, as Jason said, a huge Chinese consumer base. And we talk about all those investments that have been made, KFC, Hilton. Chinese consumers are mainly the ones who are helping generate those profits and that revenue coming from for those companies. Uh, that's one of the very interesting things about China is that at this point, much of the tourism, much of the economic, uh, uh, you know, uh, generative benefits that come out of China, much of the development is really Chinese based. So that is something that the United States is going to have to reconcile is that China is not going to be a country and it never was this country. But certainly now it is quite clear that China is not going to be a nation. It's not going to be a society that simply follows U.S. diktats that allows its political, economic, military, foreign policy, develop, all the development of all spheres to be dictated by U.S. terms. And that is something the United States is going to have to come to terms with, because if it does not, a, as Jason said, a deterioration of relations does truly hurt the U.S. the most. What we are finding is that while China would much rather have a strong relationship with the United States, would much rather not see the chaos that comes globally for anybody when it comes to soured relations between the two, China does have the ability to continue to move forward in its objectives, in its policy goals, in the development goals that it has set out for itself with less U.S. involvement. And that was seen with what Huawei was able to achieve with its new phone model, the Huawei Mate Pro 60, like to be able to do that 
to be able to build advanced ships without the United States really even understanding how and why it happened with the sanctions that have been leveled upon China goes to show that China is willing to continue to cooperate with the United States if it is possible. But China certainly has the ability to remain resilient and stable despite whatever challenges come about from a sour relationship. So the United States is really the one to go back to what you were saying earlier, Jing Jing, like the impact of better relations with China really does serve to benefit the United States, I believe, far more than even China. China will get a lot of benefits from a good relationship, but the United States will get far more. It'll get the ability to trade with what will be the biggest economy. It will be able to stabilize its own economic situation, and it will be able to find opportunities to learn for people-to-people -people exchanges to, uh, as Gavin Newsom even indicated, to understand how to address climate catastrophe like China is doing so well with its development of renewable energy. There are many opportunities for the United States to become more efficient, to become a better society with better relations with China. But if it squanders that because U.S. political leadership and, of course, the misguided foreign policy and economic interests behind it uh, make it so, then the United States won't benefit. The United States will continue on a path to what I see as chaos and catastrophic decline, because that is really the path that the United States is on at this very moment. Thank you, gentlemen. Uh, you know, when you see the recent interactions between Chinese leadership leadership and with the Americans from different fields, either um, senior diplomats at, like Henry Kissinger or uh, new politicians like Gavin Newsom uh, or our businessman Tim Cook, Elon Musk, uh, or the flying tiger soldiers who fought with the Chinese soldiers uh, during World War II. Um, Chinese leadership have been welcoming them and trying to boost more communications between Chinese people and American people. So I think it's very apparent, very clear that from the upper level to lower level, like people in China want to have a better relationship with Chinese people. It's uh, they are saying the words, they are also doing the actions. So, and let's see what's going to happen to Chinese people in America. I do hope there are more actions from the U.S. politicians that try to boost the communications between the people. And uh, I remember just a few months ago, Chinese President Xi Jinping said, uh, China will be better when the world is better. And when China is better, the world will also even be better. So I mean, he said, well, it's, it's, it's apparent China is not seeking dominance. It's like China is not seeking to control the whole world. And if the whole world is collapsing, China will collapse as well. So it's not in the interest of China. So China wants the world to be better, America to be better, the conflicts in Europe or Middle East all be better. So China's economy and everything will be better. So it, it's interactive. It's not a zero-sum game. You're when I lose or, or I win, you lose. It's not a zero-sum game. So I think to at least to us, to me, the, all the things that Chinese people have been doing is to working for a better relationship, better future. And I can only hope for the same coming from the United States. Uh, so uh, I think so far the conversation has been really great. Uh, do you have some final words before we end this recording? If I could uh, talk to uh, Americans who are considering coming to university in China or even con considering going to university, even back to university if you're a little older to get a master's degree, 
Um, the United States has a crippling student loan crisis right now. It's roughly $2 trillion in student loans affecting 45 million to 50 million Americans. In some, in some of this debt will not be able to be gotten rid of until people pass away, actually. The interest on them and some of the loans in some cases are 6 or 7% for someone's lifetime. If people are just trying to pay on interest, they'll never pay it off. So I just want to point out the fact that Chinese universities cost less than 10% as much as American universities, guys. I really think it's a great opportunity for you to consider coming to China and coming to the universities here. The cost of living is lower, the cost of tuition is lower, and you're gonna, you know, you're going to actually be creating bridges, building bridges with yourself. You can be a cultural bridge, a cultural ambassador between China and the United States by making Chinese friends, learning Chinese, and getting, you know, a master's degree or maybe your bachelor's degree here in China. And you'll come away with way less or maybe even no debt at all. Oh, yeah. You're listening to The Bridge. I would just add to that. I think that's a, a good pitch for increased people to people exchanges, especially among young people. And there's also another huge element to appealing to young people at this point in the United States, and that is the crisis in Gaza. You have millions of people across the world, millions of people even in the United States, marching almost every single day to end the uh, war that's happening in Gaza for a ceasefire to occur. And I think for ordinary Americans, especially young people, it's important to look at how the global situation is developing around crises like what's going on in Gaza. And if you look at China's approach to it, then we have a pretty good model of what most people in the United States would want. China has been calling for a ceasefire, but a ceasefire with justice, justice for the Palestinian people, the ability for the Palestinian people to make progress on what the United Nations has supposedly set forth to do, which is to establish a Palestinian state. So China has been actually advocating for what the vast majority of people in the United States, especially young people, have been demanding from their own government. And so it's really important that young people learn more about China who live in the United States. It's really important for all people, of course, in the United States to learn more about China and its role in the world, because I think it can really point to uh, the genu genuine and general direction that most people, not just in the United States, but in the world want to go in. And this is the same for the crisis in Ukraine, the conflict occurring there. China's position has been not just neutral, but also very sophisticated in the ways that it's maintained relations with everyone while also working toward genuine peace. China's uh, negotiations and diplomacy in the Middle East, brokering peace between what used to be sworn enemies, Saudi Arabia and Iran. I mean, we can go on and on and on in how China has had a positive impact in the world. And so for those that are interested in what is going on in the world in the United States, for those who are really turning their eyes toward the horrific scenes and developments going on in Gaza, it's important to understand that there certainly are other countries in the world that stand for peace. And China is the biggest, not just literally, but also in terms 
of its influence and impact. And it's just important for people to recognize that in the United States, because oftentimes it is China that is being blamed and denigrated for its role in the world, which makes it hard for people in the United States to relate to China's foreign policy and to understand that indeed it is not just whatever the United States uh, says goes. It is truly a very diverse world out there. And the United States is a big part of uh, uh, making sure and developing a world order that is based on justice and based on true multilateralism. So that's that's all I would like to say to end here. Thank you so much, gentlemen. Very, very interesting. And um, the conversation, I think you guys have been, I mean, uh, made more people aware what is really like for being the bridge connecting China and the U.S. You guys are also the perfect example of the bridge. And Jason, your show's name is The Bridge. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So thank you, gentlemen. Um, uh, I think we can conclude now. And let's let's take let's focus on what's gonna happen in the next few days and how the meeting will go. And probably we'll have Bill back on this show to discuss uh, the results after the APAC meeting. 